Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection Church. Uh, it's great to be with you all this morning on a, what feels like a lovely summer day. I wish we could be outside with you guys this morning, uh, but we're here and we're thankful for what we do have. Uh, we are in a series uh, through the life of Abram. It's in the book of Genesis, uh, in, in the, first, the very first book of, of the scriptures. Uh, we are looking at his life over the next number of weeks. We kind of will hit to the end of June. Uh, he is sort of the first man of faith. And we actually see why in, in, this, in this passage today, why Romans calls him the father of all of us who believe, uh, whether we're Jewish or whether we're, you know, some other race, Scottish or, or whatever, whatever we are, how he, he is the father to us all. And we're looking today at how he believes God, despite some major questions he has, some major problems he has with the way the promises of God are coming true for him. Uh, but b- before we begin the sermon, I want to read Genesis 15 for you. You can follow along there in the bulletin. And of course, if you have a copy of the scriptures, follow along there. Um, also, by the way, I- I'm fighting some allergies. And so if I'm sniffing or red eyes or whatever, um, I'm-, I'm all loaded up on allergy medicine. So hopefully we'll make it through without too much sort of face carnage and dripping and coughing and sneezing and stuff like that. Uh, we'll do our best. But Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And this concludes the reading of God's word. I bet a lot of us are familiar with a math trick question that I first learned. I think it was grade four, maybe grade five or something like that. So if there are kids, you kind of older-ish kids out there listening, I mean, adults play along too. But which one would you choose? You can have one of the two following things. Option number one is I will give you $1 million every day for a month. That's your first option. Okay. 
Your second option is you can have $1 today, the first day of the month. I'll double it tomorrow, you can have $2. I'll double it the day after that, $4 in the third. And for 30 days, I'll double it. Which would you choose? And kids, if you want to pause the video here and do a little, little survey of the room, you can. Instinctively, we want the cash up front. $1 million versus $1, I'll take the million dollars, thanks. Even day three, $1 million versus $4, great. For the first 20 days, you'd be feeling pretty good about yourself if you took option number one. Because up until that point, the $1 million a day plan has vastly outperformed the doubling plan. But on day one, or day 21, the second option also hits just over a million dollars. By day 25, if you chose a second option, you're making around $16 million a day. And of course, by day 30, you make more than $500 million on that single day. Now, what's my point? My point is that naturally, intuitively, we're not great long-term thinkers, and perhaps we're not good at math either, but that's a different question. We're just naturally concerned, I think, about today, about tomorrow, and, it, and that can dramatically affect our financial lives because we don't understand how investing and compounding whatever works, but it, it also affects our spiritual lives. As we're going to see in the story of Abram, there are some pretty incredible promises that come Abram's way, but they're in the future. And Abram, like, I have a hard time with long-term thinking. It's hard for him to imagine life in five years, in 25 years, or in 400 years. The facts of life, the problems, they're hitting him right now. And he has this real difficulty uh, believing in God and believing what God's telling him. So I want to look at our story today in four parts. First, we'll talk about promises. Second, we'll talk about questions. Third, we'll talk about proofs. And fourth, we'll talk about trusts. Trust, not trusts. Trust. Uh, what you've already may have noticed about this passage is that there's actually two narratives. There's two stories that run on parallel tracks side by side, and they both proceed in a similar way. In both cases, in both stories, God makes a promise to Abram. Abram responds with a question, and then God provides Abram with sort of a bit more information, but more proof of his ability to, de to deliver on the promises. So that's how we're going promise, question, proof. And then, um, and then at the end, I'm going to actually verse six, right in the middle of the passage, it's actually sort of this theological comment that ties both stories together and explains how Abram responds to God. And that's when we'll talk about trust. But first, the promises. What does God promise Abram? Well, the chapter opens with these words, after these things. Now, when it says after these things, that might refer to the recent events. Remember, if you were tuning in last week, Abram operated as a military commander. He, he rescued his, his nephew Lot, and then he rejected an offer from the king of Sodom to divide the plunder. He gave God all, all, the, all the credit for the victory. It may refer to those things, but more likely, according to you know, smart Bible people, the narrator is saying everything that Abram has been through so far up until now. Since the journey from Ur to Syria, Syria to Canaan, the, the, the famine, the mistakes in Egypt, the separation from Lot, the rescue of Lot, everything that's happened in Abram's life so far has led up to this moment where God speaks. After all these things, you might read that. And it says in verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. A vision means Abram's not asleep, but he's awake. And while awake, he sees something, or at least in this passage, he for sure hears something. And he hears the voice of God, the word of God saying, not to fear, because God will be his shield and his reward will be very great. Now, remember what Abram has been through. Since we've met him, Abram has experienced childlessness, famine, uh, displacement, geographic displacement, trouble with a foreign king, family fights and squabbles, the kidnapping of family members, and military conflicts. His life's been no picnic. A lot of really hard things have happened to him. 
And I bet Abram was wondering, man, remember that old place back in Ur and how good things were there? And I was wealthy and I was protected and I had friends and it was relatively peaceful. I wonder if he wondered, what am I doing here? Why, why am I in Canaan? This is crazy. Is it always going to be like this? I think we can read into God's word to Abram that Abram was afraid. Because guess what? You don't tell unafraid people not to be afraid. The people you say, do not be afraid to, those are the people who are scared and worried and anxious. But God promises, despite everything that's happened, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to stand between you and the attacks of the enemies. I'm going to absorb blows that were meant for you. And instead of getting hit, getting shot with arrows or whatever, you're going to be rewarded. And reward here refers to, it's a very broad word, but it refers to both descendants and wealth. God, recognizing Abram's state, kind of re-promises him everything will be taken care of. He will have enough. This is the first promise of descendants and wealth. Now jump down to the second story. In verse 7, God speaks to Abram a second time, reminds him he brought him to the land of Canaan, and he will give him the land as his possession. In this chapter, though, we see reiterated the two great promises that God has made over and over. I didn't go back and count the times, but I think we're at three or four already, where where God has promised Abram heirs and land. Uh, This is what God has been saying. I'm going to bless you, Abram, and I'm going to use your descendants to bless all the peoples of the world. Now, let's pause for a moment and reflect on the character of God as revealed by these promises. If you picture God as a gift giver, what kind of gift giver do you think he is? And try to stay out of like your theological mind for a second or your intellectual mind. Um, just go with your gut impulse. What does it feel like he is? Is he generous? Is he stingy? Is he generous but kind of begrudging? <laughs> like, I didn't want to give you this, but I felt like I had to. Is, or is he generous but kind of thoughtless? Like he gives you expensive things you don't really need. I think it's our natural tendency when we go through hard things like Abram to picture God either as kind of stingy or kind of grumpy or kind of uncaring. I was walking around my neighborhood this week feeling grumpy about the pandemic, you know, classic Wednesday. Um, and, and I was thinking and, and trying to pray, but mostly just thinking about everything that we've lost, everything that all, all the additional hardships that have been heaped on, on all of us in different ways. And then I was also trying to think about my sermon (laughs) at the same time. And I I was realizing how hard it is to think of God as generous when all the things that aren't going well in your life are kind of like right in front of your face. And yet Wednesday, it was, of course, the start of this great stretch of weather we've been having. It was a beautiful day, sunny and warm. The birds were chirping. The trees were budding. And no one in my life was sick. And I have a good job. And we have a house with a backyard. and, and, And you can kind of go on and on as you actually begin to number the different ways that at least I have been blessed. And my, but my temporary grumpiness was overshadowing the gifts of a good God. The troubles were so close, it was kind of like obscuring my view. But my point here in the chapter is, this shows us what God is actually like. We can get so myopic, so short-sighted, we don't see it. But God loves to give. He loves to bless. He loves to encourage. He's kind to his people. He didn't need to reiterate these promises. He might have told Abram, hey, I've already told you. Do I have to say it over and over? I already already told you. But why does he tell him? Because Abram needs to hear it again and again, that God's going to be good. He's going to be faithful. He's going to shield him. God promises him land, descendants, and protection. Now let's move to the second part, questions. 
So God has made promises. Abram's got some questions. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, but. Abram's got a question. He has a problem on his hands as it relates to the promises of God. And the problem is obviously this. He's childless. And in that culture, to be childless, it was not just a function of, of medical circumstances in the male or the female reproductive system or whatever, uh, the way that maybe we'd understand it a little bit more now. But to be childless, people assumed that you were under the punishment of God, that his judgment, maybe you've done something wrong to deserve this. And we know this is sort of how Abram views the situation because of verse 3. He says, behold, you, O God, you have given me no offspring. This is something God has failed to come through on, in Abram's opinion. Family was everything to them. Descendants, particularly male descendants, they mattered a great deal. And so Abram has a problem. All the wealth, all the protection, he's like, none of this matters if I have no one to pass it on to. And Abram complains to God that all his wealth will go to what we assume is his chief servant, Eliezer of Damascus. It seems to be customary that if you didn't have an heir, if you didn't have a, a biological child to pass things along to, then the household members, maybe the chief servant or whatever, they would inherit all your property. This is Abram's first complaint. I'm childless. Now look down, look at, now look down at verse 8, Abram's second complaint. God has promised him the land, and verse 8 begins, but he said... It's the same construction as verse 2. But Abram said, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Abram's got a problem. The land of Canaan, it's filled with Canaanites. They're not leaving. They have big cities. Abram has, according to the last chapter, 318 trained men. That's not going to be enough. (laughs) He can't take over the land with that. And so Abram basically says to God, you keep promising me the land. But when? How? I need some details. Twice God has promised things to him. And now twice Abram has asked questions. Now here's what I want you to see about the questions. I think they come from belief, not from unbelief. And let me tell you why. His questions assume that God is going to deliver on what he's promised. And so Abram's asking the sort of the, the, the where, what, you know, how questions. He's not questioning God's existence. He's not questioning God's power. He's not questioning God's authority or even the promises exactly. He just wants to know, like, like, when and how are these things going to happen? See, God promised to bless him. Abram assumes that includes descendants, and God had promised that before, descendants. And so Abram's like, well, what are you going to do about my, about my childlessness? God promises him the land, but Abram's like, well, what about all these guys? Abram wonders what's going on when the fulfillment of the promises is delayed. It takes spiritual energy to, uh, to ask questions of God. It does. It, it's easier to give in, to just get apathetic or, get, or become cynical. That, that's, that's the easier path. It's harder to, to ask questions of God. Uh, we see a man, we see Abram trying to believe, and he's bringing his sincere questions to God. That's the same thing you see, you know, if you read the life of Job, if you read, if you read his book. Everything in Job's life felt falls apart. Of course, famously, he loses children, wealth, the respect of his friends, even his own health. But he never descends to sort of uh, cynicism. He asks his questions, and then he waits on God. So listen, if you are in a circumstance where God's promise or God's blessing is delayed, or it's absent, it takes spiritual energy to engage with God about it. It's easier to give up on God than to engage with God. 
And I think lots of us, when we face hardship, we move quickly past wrestling with God about it to just either ignoring him or silently brooding or just closing our eyes and it'll be over at some point. Abram models for us what faith looks like when the, when the blessing of God isn't there, that, that he, he's sort of banging on God's metaphorical door and saying, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. So if you are in a place this morning where the circumstances of life bother you, that is a reason to pray, not a reason to not pray or to stop praying. So for instance, if the pandemic or the, or the government world response to it, if that makes you mad or it has you really sad and bumped out, that's actually a chance to move towards God with your questions. If a lack of friendships or a lack of romantic relationships or really bad friendships or really bad romantic relationships, if that has made you mad or sad or frustrated, that is also a chance to move towards God. If you didn't get into the right program or if in some way the doors of opportunity are slamming shut in your life, that's a chance to move towards God with your questions. And be honest, you know, go somewhere where you can talk out loud and it's not going to, you know, weird out your apartment neighbors or whatever. Uh, and, and you can be honest with God and you, can, and you can ask him your questions. But I would tell you, the life of faith, don't be cynical. Don't lose heart. Pray, ask, question, wrestle. This is what it looks like. When, when the promises of God are delayed or Abram doesn't understand how they're going to happen, he engages with his questions. Part three, proofs. Well, what does God give Abram in response to his questions? Well, look at verse four. Abram's frustrated. Eliezer is going to inherit everything. And God says to him, this man shall not be your heir. And actually in Hebrew, it's almost like a joke. God's dismissive of Eliezer. Like, oh, that guy. <laughs> that, that one is what the Hebrew says. He's not going to inherit anything. You're getting your own son. So God kind of answers him, but moreover, he gives him a proof. God brings him outside and says, well, look up at the heavens, look up at the, the, the night sky, and says, Abram, go ahead, count them. <laughs> count all the stars. You will have as many descendants as the stars. In a less light-polluted world, there would have easily been thousands of stars visible to the naked eye. And maybe if you had this experience, maybe on a camping trip or during a blackout or something, if you, you know, if you stare really hard at, at like a little, little section of the sky, you'll notice not just the bright stars, the ones that you easily see, but like, oh, like there's all these faint ones kind of behind it that you didn't really notice until you stared really hard. And you quickly realize that there's no end to the numbering of stars. Even with telescopes, we now know like the number of stars is in the trillions or something like that, but we haven't kind of found the edges yet or there are things kind of beyond uh, the, the, the sight of our telescopes. God's point is not really the number. God's point is, if he can cast a thousand million stars into space, he can deal with Abram's childlessness. The proof that God can deliver on his promises, it's, it's, it's written in the stars, so to speak. Second proof. Look at verse 9. Abram wants to know about the land. And there's sort of a strange proof. <laughs> God says, well, bring some animals. Get a cow, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram cuts the animals in half, but not the birds. Maybe they were too small or whatever. And then Abram falls into a deep sleep. And the book of Genesis uses this word to indicate a divinely induced, abnormally heavy sleep. Maybe like a coma or sedation or something like that. And in, and in Abram's sleep, God speaks to him and says, hey, you're going to die in peace. <laughs> you're going to die a good old man in old age. And your people will inherit the land, but only after 400 years. And by the way, in those 400 years, they're going to be afflicted. It's going to be really bad. 
Unlike the promise of an heir, which Abram gets to see, which is going to come soon, we presume, the promise of the land comes only through great difficulty. And there are actually a number of negative events that happen during the second proof um, that, that kind of tip us off. First, did you see that when Abram cut up the animals that birds of prey tried to eat them? It's as if the birds themselves are, are symbolizing opposition to this promise. Second, the thick darkness. That's not the same thing as the sleep. The sleep happens and then there's thick darkness. It's kind of foreboding. And then third, God obviously explains that, that Abram's descendants will be taken out of the land of Canaan and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Think about how long 400 years is. That's like more than twice as old as Canada. Older than our, our brothers and sisters to the south, the United States. Think about what was going on in the year 1621, 400 years ago. The colony at Plymouth, just been founded. The Holy Roman Empire, like still a thing, still going. Uh, Huguenots were fighting Catholics in France. Like, like 400 years ago was an unbelievably long time ago. And God tells Abram, 400 years they're going to be servants. Oppressed and afflicted. But eventually they'll be brought back into the land. And they'll get the land of all those tribes that are listed there. Now, notice in both cases, God answers the question. God, Abram asks, God answers, but the answer is not a proof. The second proof is this. The sun is, it has gone down, and then in verse 17, a smoking fire pot, which you're like, what is that? It's a kind of primitive oven is, is the best explanation for it. But uh, so it's sort of this, like, this, smoky, this smoky cooking thing, along with a flaming torch, they pass between the pieces of animals. And God makes a covenant with Abram, the text says, promising him the land. Now, what's going on? Well, first, smoke and fire, these are extremely common images of God. When God shows up sort of in person in the scriptures, this is often how his presence is expressed. You know, when Israel leaves Egypt after slavery, after 400 years, you know what they're led by? A pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Cloud and fire. When Israel gets to Mount Sinai, where they're going to get the word of the Lord, or the, 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 the law of God, and the presence of God descends on the mountain, and Moses goes up to get it. When the Israelites sort of stare upwards at the mountain, what do they see? They see dark clouds and lightning and fire. God shows up in one of his sort of usual forms, we could call it, to make a covenant with Abram. Now, what's going on with the animals? Why are, why are animals being cut in half here? Uh, it was a way of making a sacred promise. What you would do when you wanted to have two parties that were coming together to make a serious promise to each other, you'd, you'd take these animals like Abram did and you'd chop them in half. And as the two of you made the promise, you, you would walk between the pieces of animals together. And what that symbolized were the repercussions if you failed to do what you, what you promised. You're saying, if I don't follow through, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain here, then may what was done to these animals be done to me. Now imagine for a moment that Instead of exchanging rings at a wedding ceremony <laughs> to symbolize unending love, you're like the bride and the groom are walking between like dead animals or whatever. It'd certainly be an interesting wedding ceremony. But that's how two parties showed that they were serious. That's how you'd ratify a covenant. You didn't, you didn't give rings. You walked between dead animals. By God passing between the animals, he's giving us the ultimate proof that he will do what he promised. That the air and the land they're now sort of double stamped, you know, no erases, because, because God has guaranteed it. But there is something funny about this covenant ceremony. There's something missing. In other covenants, as I mentioned, both parties, both, both sides would walk through the pieces. But did you notice, Abram doesn't walk through the pieces. It's God alone 
in smoke and fire who passes between the pieces. And that tips us off to something very important. And this is where Christianity differs from all the other world religions and belief systems. Because Christianity says, and actually, sort of like what Frankie said earlier in the service, you could never uphold your end of the bargain. You're never going to be able to make a deal with God that you can live up to. There's nothing you can do that will get God's favor. But the good news is God walked through the pieces, which means he has bound himself of his own free will to love his people and be faithful to them. And what we actually find out in Jesus is that the only way that God could make that promise was by walking through the pieces as both sides of the covenant. You know that Abram will screw up. Like next week, chapter 16, it's going to go bad again. Abram's, Abram's going to get off track. Abram could never be a true partner. God would have to be the other side. That Jesus would have to be torn apart for the failure of humans. See, the only way that God can be faithful to a rebellious people is that he will take our side of the covenant with both its curses and blessings upon himself and pay the penalty of our faithlessness. It's an astonishing act deeply foreshadowing of Jesus that God pledges his faithfulness to Abram and to all who walk in Abram's line by faith. So this means that the proof of God's faithlessness, or faithfulness, pardon me, to you and to me and to humanity is Jesus Christ. The dead and risen Savior, that's God saying, I will be faithful to you. I will love you. I will bless you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The Savior bled so you don't have to. And I think this is very important, so please listen. When when life comes at us hard, and and when things get really ugly in our lives, and we we have really bad days, and it feels like God no longer loves us, or he doesn't know about what's going on with us, or he doesn't care, whenever we get to our lowest, We cast our eyes to the cross and see there the proof that he has loved us. Because he allowed himself to be cut off on our behalf. When the promises of God feel long delayed, and we think we may drown in our questions, we return to the cross. Because God has so loved the world, he sent his son. So when the questions flood in, when you're wondering, does justice win? Do the wicked lose? Will we ever be free from this body of death? I invite you to look to the Savior, for there lies the proof. This proof doesn't mean that all the promises are fulfilled right away. I mean, Abram's explicitly told, you're going to die. (laughs) You're not going to see the land. You will go down to your death waiting. So listen, you may not get all you want from God. Your marriage might never be what you want it to be. You might not get married. Your vocation might be deeply disappointing. You may not have kids. You may have deeply troubled kids. None of that means God doesn't love you. We often tie his love to his blessing, and we feel loved by God when we are blessed. But the proof is not in the blessing. The proof is in the cross. For the Savior hung to fulfill our side of the covenant. But we need to move to part four, and trust. The construction of verse six in Hebrew is weird, kind of weird at least. It's, it's called a Janus. And what that means for sort of regular old people like us is that the author has inserted a theological evaluation of these two parallel encounters. The verse, in other words, isn't really part 
of either story. It's not chronologically related. Rather, Moses, who wrote this book, is telling us that when God offered this promise to Abram and gave proof of the promise through the stars, that Abram believed God. He believed him. Now, this is a curious part of the life of faith. It's a curious part of Christianity. See, on one hand, we're always arguing, as I just did, we must recognize Christ has done everything for us. He has fulfilled our side of the covenant, and that's true. But to be included with Christ still demands belief. Not all humanity is included with Christ, only those who believe. So what does it mean to, be, to believe in God? Well, one of the activities I did for the first time at summer camp, uh, maybe you've heard of this, is called the Trust Fall. Uh, I've noticed on YouTube they have, you know, sort of hilarious compilations of these things going badly. But in my life, you know, so far so good. But the basic idea is you get eight to ten people and you kind of stand opposite each other and you all put your arms out and a person falls backward off a table or a tree stump or something, and you, they kind of like fly as stiff as they can, and they fall back into the arms of their teammates or friends. And it's often used as like a team-building exercise, you know, your first day at camp or whatever. Now, now why? Well, because a trust fall intellectually makes sense. You understand that if eight to ten people all put their arms out and don't, you know, let them go, uh, they'll have no problem catching you. They'll have no problem handling your weight. The real questions of a trust fall, none of them are intellectual. <laughs> they're, they're trust questions, of course. That's why we call it a trust fall. It's one thing to agree that this will work. It's actually one thing to see other people do it and be like, yeah, it worked for them. It's a whole other thing when you're standing on the table and you have to cross your arms over your chest and close your eyes and, and, you know, and fall backwards. Because everything in you wants to protect yourself. I've got to break my fall. I got I gotta not, you know, smash my head on the ground. But 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 that isn't trust. When it says Abram believed God, it means it more bodily and less intellectually. See, it's it, it doesn't really mean that Abram understands that God can give him children or God can give him the land. No, no. It it means Abram is leaning everything upon that. He is trust falling backwards into that promise. There's no backup plan. There's no other options. Either God catches him or, you know, or it's, it's over. <laughs> you know, it's over for him. And this is what the life of faith looks like. Where you take a long, hard look at what God has promised you in Jesus Christ. You ask your question. You wrestle all your wrestles. You look at the cross. You look at the faithfulness of God and what happened there. But then you must trust. You must trust. You must throw your life into the hands of God with no backup options. And if you do, this text tells us that God reckoned, God counted Abram's trust as righteousness. Now, (laughs) the Apostle Paul, he takes an entire chapter of Romans to explain what that means. You know, Romans 4, if you want to go read it this afternoon or this week or whatever. But I I can summarize it for you by saying this. God, in his ledger book, his, his great accounting book of the universe, He has sort of marked down that faith is enough. Faith is enough for life with God because only the righteous, and righteous, just think of it, means like exceptionally good and and pure. Uh, Only the good can be with God. And what we know about Abram is he wasn't that good. I mean, some of the time he was, but not all the time, maybe not even most of the time. But if we believe God, if we throw ourselves on him, we are accredited the righteousness of Christ. The goodness of Jesus is counted on your side of the ledger. And gone are the selfishnesses. Gone is all the violence. Gone is all the lust and greed. If you, if you include, if you throw yourself upon Christ, then God counts that as righteous and you are included with him. 
So that would be my encouragement to you today. Look at the promises. Ask your questions. Look at Christ. Look at the proof of God and throw yourself upon him. Get rid of your backup plans. Get rid of your plan Bs. Get rid of all the other ways of making yourself feel better. Trust him, for he welcomes you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, and we are grateful that you've given us this text. We're thankful for our forefather, Abraham, who who shows us how to trust, shows us what it means to look at your promises, to evaluate them, to ask questions, but then to throw ourselves upon them. So would we do that? Would you work in us faith and belief and trust? Especially for those of us who are struggling, whose, whose hardships and difficulties of the present moment is, is obscuring our view of you. Please show us yourself this morning and help us to trust. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.